When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to SFF Yeah, a podcast dedicated to all things science fiction and fantasy. This is episode 23, and we're recording on April 6th. I'm Jen Northington, and I'm here with Sharifa Williams, and we are coming to you from Book Riot, and today's theme is short fiction. Hooray! Hooray! Um, I, <laughs> I will admit that at first I was like, I am going to have like not enough to talk about, so at the last minute I had to choose another book pick uh oh. but yeah that's it's been you've been having an interesting day like we're here <laughs> and i feel like there might be like some scatterbrain moments during this show oh so yes to... we had to postpone the recording by let's see we're going on four hours later here <laughs> because of plumbers and cats and all kinds of madness so yeah i'm a little punchy not gonna lie it's gonna be interesting um before we get super punchy let us us do a quick mention of a giveaway that we are doing at Book Riot. Um, we are giving away 15 of the best mysteries of the year so far, all from diverse authors. So POC, LGBTQ uh, authors, all who should be on your radar. And the giveaway is open until May 9th, so you have a little time. Um, so you should go to bookriot.com slash mystery giveaway to enter. And there's also a post on the site that has the full list of titles if you want to check it out first. But definitely don't don't sleep on that. Yeah, that I've been hearing a lot about that. Uh, there's one book on the list, The Widows of Malabar Hill, I oh, think. Oh, yes. I've my been... friends love that okay, book. I need yeah. to read it. It's on my list. Yeah, I've been seeing that everywhere. And so when I saw it on the list, I was like, man, I feel like I'm getting a lot of like signals to read it. But I don't get to read a lot of mysteries. So. <laughs> the universe is telling you something, Sharifa. It is. It is. Read more mystery. <laughs> Maybe I need like science fiction fantasy mystery. That'd be really cool. I mean, we That's have those. Yeah, totally. We should talk about those sometime. Yes. All right. So before we get into our news stories, I am going to tell you about our first sponsor of the day, which is Shattered Roads, which is the first in a brand new series from Alice Henderson. So in Shattered Roads, in a future laid waste by environmental catastrophe, H-124 has one job – Dead body removal. Sounds fantastic. <laughs> she, keep, <laughs> she keeps her head down and does as she's told until one night H-124's routine leads her into the underground ruins of an ancient university. Buried within it is an alarm set up generations ago, sharing a terrifying warning of an extinction-level asteroid hurtling toward Earth. But H-124's warning is not only ignored, it's considered treason. H-124 is hunted and sent fleeing beyond the shield of her walled metropolis. In the weather-ravaged unknown, her only hope lies with a rebellious faction of survivors. She has no other choice. The end of the world is near. That sounds frightening. Um, So that was Shattered Roads by Alice Henderson. And thank you so much for sponsoring this show. 
My burning question about that book is, does she get a fun new name from one of the rebels who she's also maybe going to fall in love with, a la Star Wars? (laughs) That's all I can think of right now is is Finn getting his his name from Poe. Sorry. sorry. You could could totally be right about that. Writing fan fiction for a book I haven't read based on Star Wars because that's what my brain is doing right now. That's legit. Like I mean, you're an SFF nerd. That's imp- you sort of expect it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so let's see. The first thing I want to talk about are the Hugo nominees, Yay. in part because it is a great list, and also because I learned a thing this week prepping for the show. I and saw I would that. Like I would like to share the thing I learned, which some of you maybe already know, but some of you don't. Okay, so we'll <laughs> rewind a second here before I get into my the more you know moment. Um, so the 2018. Hugo Award nominees are up and it is the uh, award for the best sci-fi and fantasy literature published in 2017 and as you will notice there is a lot of overlap with the Nebulas um like a ton of overlap uh, for a good reason. The books that there that are on the list are really great. I have read all but one of the best novel picks, which are The Collapsing Empire, New York 2140, which is one I haven't read yet, uh, Provenance by Anne Leckie, Raven Stratagem, Six Wakes, and The Stone Sky, which is very exciting. Um, there's a bunch of great names on the novella and novelette lists. I did, There's good names in the short story. Like, it's just a really good good list it is I agree yeah it's fantastic um and so okay so I was thinking though about the overlap Mm -hmm. between the nebulas and the hugos and I was like well wait so what's the difference like they're two separate awards but what is the difference between them um and it turns out that the voting is the primary difference so it's the same book pool they're both looking at books published books short stories etc published in 2017 um but to vote in the Hugos, you anybody who is a member of the World Science Fiction Society can vote. And all you need to do to become a member is buy a membership in this year's Worldcon. And you don't even have to go to the con. So a supporting membership is like 50 bucks or 40 bucks, something like that. Um, and that's like you get you you pay for a membership and now you can vote in the Hugos. And you also, I've heard from voting members, get a pack of like uh, selections, if not full copies of the books from that year digitally. You get like Ooh. a voters pack. Yeah. So oftentimes the cost of your membership is actually outweighed by the literature that you get. So so that's, a, that's an award that's open to, like you could be an author, you could be an industry person, you could just be a reader. Like anybody who's got that membership can vote and there's no requirement for membership other than that you paid for it. The Nebulas, however, are voted on and presented by members of the Science Fiction Fantasy Writers of America, and those members do have to meet eligibility requirements, which basically are that they earn a certain amount of money from writing sci-fi fantasy. So the Nebulas, theoretically, are you're being voted upon by your peers, Whereas the Hugos, it's your peers and or the public, which I thought was really interesting. And I am now glad to know that. I am too. I was very interested and it made a lot of sense, especially in terms of like thinking about the time of the sad puppies where it was like this whole- With the Hugos, yeah. Yeah. And you know, that was, you know, where they were basically trying to get rid of any books that had quote unquote messaging and Mm -hmm. everybody was able, like that makes sense that they had access to try to make this big voting campaign happen because it's not- 
terribly difficult to get in and be able to vote on the Hugos. Right, exactly. Yeah, so that's one way you can manipulate the slate. Whereas, like, the nebulas, I would, I mean, it's interesting, though, because, you know, I'm sure that the SFFWA membership is pretty broad, but I wonder, like, because you don't, you don't have to decide you want to be a member of that. You could be a published yeah. sci-fi writer and not join. And I imagine most do, but it's just an interesting thing to think about. Um, we also could get some awards history this year. So the Stone Ooh, yeah. Sky, yeah, I'm super excited about this possibility. Um, the Stone Sky, which is the third book in N.K. Jemisin's Broken Earth trilogy, is up for Best Novel Hugo for 2018. And the first and second books in the trilogy both won Best Novel in their years. So if Stone Sky wins this year, it will make N.K. Jemisin the first author in history to win the Hugo Award for Best Novel three years in a row. That's amazing. I know. <laughs> I'm just like, oh, I want it so bad. And not just because that's a really cool moment in history for a lot of different reasons, but also because The Stone Sky is one of the best third books I've ever read. Like, it is really hard to pull off an amazing third book, I feel. That's and true. I think she did it. I mean, it's just such a good, such a strong book to end a trilogy on. I feel like everybody will be screaming, like, you know, people in the science fiction fantasy community will be screaming about this if she does win. I mean, she already broke a, she already broke a record, like being the yes. first African-American woman um, to win it and in a yeah. fiction or best novel, rather. Uh, so yeah, it's going to be, I, when we post this news story on Book Riot, like I was looking at the social media and people were definitely saying like, uh, I'm, I'm kind of holding out for N.K. Jemison to win this one just because it would be a huge moment for sure. Yeah. I mean, it's both a huge moment, but also I think like richly deserved like Very there's gonna much. be like all of the sad puppies will be like oh it's political they're oh just you goodness. know like it's just about you know the like making like the historic win it's like well you know it is political but also that book is freaking amazing yes. so yeah so I have a lot of f feelings about the Hugos this year <laughs> I know I do too and I I'm in the same camp like I think we talked about this when the nebulas came out because they are similar lists but this is like one of those few times I have seen an awards list and I've actually read a few of the books on them. Usually it's like I've read one book or something right, like right. that. <laughs> so I usually feel a, a wave of guilt and weirdness about like, am I reading enough? But this time I was like, you know what? I give myself a little pat on the shoulder. And also I'm glad, you know, I actually read some of these really great. There's been so many, there's been so much good stuff coming out of science fiction and fantasy yeah. lately I'm just like I can't keep up but I'm glad that I've at least read some of these really really excellent books yes same all right so I think that I want to talk about Neil Gaiman bringing back the Gormenghast fantasy series um, tell me about it because I haven't read these books okay I've only read one of the books but I I told myself that if I ever found the time, I would continue reading them because they're so weird. So what's happening is that Neil Gaiman is totally doing the fan business about this Gormenghast fantasy series, which is this classic series um, that I guess was 
It's by Mervyn Peak, by the way, and it was brought to television a while back by the BBC. I never saw it. I honestly didn't even know that the BBC adapted Gormenghast until I read this article because, you know, sometimes you don't hear about these um, quaint BBC productions that never come to the U.S. or were on in the U.S. for like a minute. So I want to see that, first of all. And now Neil Gaiman is finally able to bring it to television. He initially planned it as um, a film, but for whatever reason, probably because this is a very sprawling series and there is a lot of material they can use. Um, So he's bringing it to TV. He has the full support of Mervyn Peake's son, Fabian Peake, because Mervyn Peake is gone. Um, But... So they're turning into a TV show, and I'm really interested in how this is going to work out because this is a very strange book. It's basically about the inhabitants of this really old, like, ancient mansion. You can't really tell what point in time you're at when you're reading the book, and it reminded me in strange ways of, like, the Adams Family like, there's a character in there that, that reminded me a lot of Wednesday Adams, which is probably why I love the book so much. <laughs> <laughs> Legit reason to love something. Yeah, but it's just, it. it's basically like being in, like, what is it? Like a an Edward Gorey book. It's like mm. living in an Edward Gorey book or something is what I would, how I would describe the Gormenghast series, which makes it sound a, completely in Neil Gaiman's wheelhouse. I can see why he wanted to bring, he wanted to do something with this series because perhaps he, you know, thought that they could have done more with the BBC miniseries or he just like wanted to put his own spin on it. So I'm really interested in seeing how this turns out. He's really busy right now, though. So I'm like, <laughs> how how is he going to fit this into his schedule? I don't see a specific date um, of its release. I think it's probably still in production. So it might be a little while before we actually see how this turns out. The original, the four-part BBC miniseries that was done in um, 2000 starred Jonathan Rhys-Meyers. I never noticed. Myers. Jonathan Rhys-Meyers and Christopher Lee. Um, So at least I can watch that, I guess, before this one comes out. But Neil Gaiman's been uh, working on it. He first hinted about it like back in 2015, which really wasn't that long ago, especially when you're working on a TV series, which takes forever, it seems. So I'm looking forward to it. I almost feel like maybe I should read the rest of the series just to see like if they maybe pull in some of the stuff, uh, some of the content from later books and... I'm really interested in if it in if it's going to be as morbid as it was. So yeah, any fans of the Gorman Gas fantasy series might be excited about that. I never hear I'm, anything about it though. Yeah, I've been meaning to read them just forever, but although I don't see references to them online very frequently, mm-hmm. but back when I was in bookstore land, they often came up as something like that I should have read. You know what I mean? They're part of yeah. the sci-fi fantasy canon. Like, even if you haven't read them, if you've been around enough, like, you've heard of them, and one day I will actually, one day I will read them, maybe. <laughs> we'll you know, it's, 
And what's funny is that the reason I read it was for the Read Harder Challenge because I oh, do the really? Read Harder podcast too. And I was like, I think it was last year's, I think there must have been a um, classic genre fiction oh, or something. Yeah. Maybe it was just classics, but I had never heard of it. Like I had never heard of it. And so I picked it up and I was like, how did I not hear of it? Mm-hmm. So Yeah. That's, Potentially that's underappreciated. Interesting. Potentially under-the-radar classic. Right. Um, I'm trying to decide if I want to talk about something that I'm cranky about or something <laughs> I think is really funny, and I can't quite pick. What do you want to hear, Sharifa? Do you want to hear me being cranky, or do you want to talk about something funny? I mean, if it's the funny thing, I feel like that'll take a second. So maybe if maybe we'll still have time for you okay. to do cranky. All right, let's talk about the funny thing. Let's talk about zombie raccoons. Let's talk. <laughs> <laughs> this is just my favorite headline uh, from Sci-Fi Wire recently. The headline is Police Investigate Reports of Zombie Raccoons Disturbing an Ohio Town. Um, and what is actually happening is that apparently there has been an outbreak of distemper in the raccoons in the Cook County area. Um, um, and what this has made them do is walk around in daylight on their hind legs and, like, approach people. Whereas raccoons are normally, like, nocturnal and, you know, not likely to, like, come right up to you unless you're interrupting their dumpster diving. Um, <laughs> and one witness reported that... Um, this is my favorite. Uh, witness Robert Cogshall told WKBN that he alerted Youngstown police after a quote-unquote feisty and sick raccoon interrupted playtime with his dogs. He would stand up on his hind legs, which I've never seen a raccoon do before, and he would show his teeth, and then he would fall over backward and go into almost a comatose condition, Cogshall told the site. That sounds like a zombie raccoon to me. Like, I don't know. Maybe this distemper thing is a cover-up. Like, this could be... This could be the zombie raccoon apocalypse, y'all. Like, this could be it. I mean, I <laughs> I feel bad because I'm like, oh, these cute little raccoons are, like, sick. But yeah. I was like, oh, my goodness. This is, like, the weirdest story ever. And I am almost positive I heard this same sort of story some in somewhere like Maine, mm. and it was like on. I must have been on NPR's uh, "This American Life" or something, and they were talking about distemper. And it's it, a thing. It, it is a it, thing. It totally is, and it absolutely sounded like a horror story. <laughs> I remember sitting in my car listening and getting the chills. I'm like thinking, "Oh my gosh, I'm never going to this place. I never want to meet an animal with distemper because it sounds like they are absolute monsters." <laughs> so you never know. There was that time with know. the. That horrible drug called bath salts or something. Oh, gosh. I forgot about bath salts. Yeah. And I was like, oh, my goodness. Everything, the world, the world is falling apart. Zombies are walking the earth. So I didn't, this, this could be. Mm-hmm. You never Let's know. hope not. Let's hope not. Let's hope it's just distemper and that everybody's fine. I know. And that the raccoons recover quickly. Don't panic yet, everyone. <laughs> Meanwhile, like I put I've got my tinfoil hat on. I know. I'm like, <laughs> gonna stock up on canned and goods this weekend. <laughs> oh my oh. goodness. Um 
do you do you want to get cranky? I will give up my story if you want. Um, oh, I guess. I mean, why not? Why not? I want to know. I want to hear what you, you want to hear. What I'm about. cranky about? Yeah. All right. So I'm cranky about Frank Miller. Surprise. Yeah. Um. The the story is that Frank Miller has decided that he was gonna. He's he okay. It starts with an announcement that he has written uh, or illustrated, rather, a young adult novel reimagining the Arthurian legend um, from the point of view of Nimue, who is the Lady of the Lake, the person who gives Arthur Excalibur, etc. Um, so it's uh, there's the young adult novel, which is illustrated by... Frank Miller and written by Thomas Wheeler. So I was like, all right, like whatever. Like Frank mm. Miller wants to write a story about a girl with a sword. Like no one is surprised particularly, but like, am I going to read that? No. Like my craving for Arthuriana, it turns out does have bounds. Um, <laughs> and I'm cranky about Frank Miller for a lot of reasons, not least including his representation of women in his comics in the past. Um, and so I was already like, mildly cranky about this the young adult novel is apparently called uh, cursed yeah tentatively titled cursed okay so is it so okay fine whatever but then Mm -hmm. it gets a tv deal like immediately it's not even out yet i mean unsurprisingly i guess considering who frank miller is but like the adaptation is already on its way to Netflix. Um, apparently, Netflix gave the property a 10-episode order. And I just am so cranky about this. Like, listen, guys. Guy Ritchie doing King Arthur is, like, the lowest bar for not having... Uh, for for like attempting a an updated less misogynist viewpoint right like like the guy Ritchie movie has lady problems for sure but like at the very least multiple women have lines and multiple women get to make an impact on the story and you know you do get like a magic wielding badass mage woman so that's something like it's it is as i said the lowest possible bar there are a lot of other issues around female representation in that movie yeah but this is gonna be i can't imagine that this is gonna beat that like there's no way that it's going to beat that and and on top of it the fact that like Frank Miller has decided that he is the person to give a young female perspective oh. on King Arthur just makes my blood boil like i guys i just he can tell whatever story he wants but man am i cranky about this i totally i am there with you i was confused when i saw this story about the um the Netflix series because i was like there is this one line and they kind of like give it the side eye in this article where they say that the reason they're working on it simultaneously is that it's going to allow them or maybe not the reason but it'll allow them to explore the characters from the book in more detail on screen which first of all I was like okay whatever that means (laughs) and yeah the part about like that Miller is telling the story of this young woman I feel like especially now that we've seen a lot of really great stuff come from like female directors and female Mm -hmm. writers and we're like you know we're all celebrating it and it's also been great like the content's been fantastic like it does feel like this is like four steps backwards yeah yeah i just i just 
like when you want to talk about who gets to tell the story, like this is a real this is a real bummer. I know, but you know Netflix saw his, you know, anytime it's it's a Frank Miller thing and he's been very successful in you know, getting his comics adapted for the screen. And, you know, Netflix is probably like, no questions asked. Just, like, get him a deal. Right, Which exactly. is sad because a lot of other people would be barred from that sort of thing, even if they have some great ideas and great well, concepts. Yeah. Sorry not to interrupt, but, oh, I mean, no that's literally the people who are producing this are also the kind of people who think, like, oh, great, Frank Miller telling a young teenage female's perspective. Like, who... it's gross (laughs) yeah it just is uh so you're probably not going to watch this one no i'm (laughs) sorry you guys i'm sorry it's been a really long day and this is i've been cranky about this for multiple days so you know trust me i feel like you're gonna you're gonna hear about it enough that you probably nobody has to watch it really well it's probably true yeah i mean we're like what more than a year out from any of this being released at at the soonest so yeah. yeah Ugh. Yeah, we need anyway. to shake it off because I know, I know. <laughs> Are we ready to talk about our actual picks? I think that's a great idea. Let's talk about something yeah. nice. <laughs> yeah, let's do that. <laughs> it's the, now is as good a time as any. But uh, first of all, I guess we're going to talk about our second sponsor. Oh, yes. In our second sponsor is Libby, which is the one tap reading app from Overdrive, without which I could not do any of the podcasts that I am on. Um, So personal endorsement there. It is an app from your library. So what you can do is download Libby onto your smartphone or device and then borrow thousands of ebooks and audiobooks for free anytime, anywhere from your library. You'll find books in all genres. There's bestsellers, classics, nonfiction, comics, um, and it works on Apple and Android devices and is compatible with Kindle. All you need is a library card, but you can actually sample any book in the library collection without one. And in select locations, Libby will even get your library card for you instantly, which is a super neat partnership that they are doing with some libraries. So you can learn more at meet.libbyapp.com. Um, and yeah, I definitely recommend checking it out. If you if you like to read on your phone and you are trying to like stay within your budget for books, which is always a difficulty, yeah. it is really fantastic. You can put things on hold. You can tag things for later. It's really convenient. Um, so again, that is Libby, and you can check it out at meet.libbyapp.com. Thank you so much for sponsoring the show. Fantastic. I love Libby too. Um, and so we are going to talk about short fiction. And when we <laughs> it's funny because when we first came to this challenge, we were talking about, you know, talking about some stuff that was awarded or nominated for Hugo's and Nebulas. And at first I was like, I'll just read some of the short stories and talk about those. And then I was like, I'm not going to be able, I'm not going to have enough to talk about. So I chose one short story, one shout out to another short story that have both been uh, nominated for Hugo's and Nebulas and then an actual collection of short stories. But um, so first I wanted to talk about the short stories that I chose from the lists from the Hugo and Nebula list. And the one I mostly want to talk about is called Fandom for Robots by Vina Jimin Prasad. And she actually has two. Um, I believe it's on the Nebula 
I'll have to look at it. Of course, I didn't write it down. A Series of Stakes is the other one she wrote. So she has, you know, two stories on these lists, which is fantastic. And I read this one and I was like, this is so entertaining. Like, I feel like if you need a pick-me-up, Jen, you should read this one. Oh, noted, noted. (laughs) So, um... First of all, I just really enjoy the process of reading these short stories. Honestly, when I come to these lists, I never really look at them. And I never really get an opportunity to read these short stories that are available online. And we'll have the the links to these um, in the show notes. Um, and I just really enjoyed randomly reading them on my computer, perhaps even more than I enjoy reading short stories in a collection, even though that sounds like blasphemy. But it felt more like stumbling on a gem, uh, which is a kind of a lie because it was choosing stories from a curated list of the best, according to the Nebula and Hugo. Um, and in any case, my first pick, which is Fandom for Robots, is a short story that is, in essence, about a vintage sentient computer discovering fan culture. And it's just an absolute delight of a story. I'm pretty sure I was smiling the entire time I read it. In fact, I legit cackled at one line. Um, I'm not going to tell you too much about the story, which was the problem I came across when I thought about like talking about these stories, is that they're, the challenge of describing it is that it's so easy to let spoilers slip or to kind of you know impress other people with your analyses. When you're coming, you know, when coming to those conclusions is really a big part of what tends to be a fairly short process in reading these. Um, But anyone who's had any interaction with or participation in fandom has been in the forums or has read some fanfic uh, or have even read the comments, heaven help us, um, or in any way has interpreted and reinterpreted the original source material and canonical works like their holy scripture, will absolutely get a kick out of seeing it through the eyes of a being who is sentient, but also super logical and supposedly removed, who's a robot. And there's a really shippable relationship in this story, perhaps even a couple of them. And there's a broader, deeper message at least in my reading, about writing in this short story. And the only problem is that I really wanted more. Like, I wanted more of the adventures of Computron, which is the name of this robot, um, which is a wish that's completely in line with the theme of this story. So I actually ended up looking around on the web for information about Prasad, the author, And she's one of probably three people on the planet who doesn't have a giant online presence, but she does have a website, albeit a a minimalist one. So she has previously contributed to the uh, Queer Southeast Asia, a literary journal of transgressive art that was back in uh, 2016, and Heat, a Southeast Asian urban anthology, also in 2016, and she has stories in Clark's World, which is where you can find a series of stakes as well. Fireside Fiction, Uncanny Magazine, which is where this story was published, and another one called Pistol Grip. Um, so I'm really hoping to see more of her because after reading this, I kind of want a collection by her. I haven't seen any word of that happening. I'm hoping that with these nominations, maybe somebody will convince her to, or if she's working on something, somebody will publish it. 
Um, but if you want more of this short story, there is actually an unbelievably a fanfic out there for it already. <gasps> Amazing. Called for Robots by Song of Sunset. I'll have to include the link to that because that is just amazing. Based on a short story, I I don't know if I've seen that before. <laughs> fanfic of fanfic. I love it. I it's love incredible. <laughs> so yeah, again, if that sounded like something you want to read, um, you can read fandom for robots online at Uncanny Magazine, and that was by Vina. Jimin Prasad. And the other one I read, which I'm just going to like shout out, is Carnival 9 by Carolyn M. Yoakum. Uh, Carolyn M. Yoakum. I actually looked up the pronunciation. Yoakum. So that's also up for Hugo and Nebula. And this one is, it definitely felt more allegorical. It's sort of a coming age, coming of age story about a wind up girl born in Closet City. And it, it that one made me think about my life and my mortality in a way I never thought a story about clockwork people would. <laughs> so I thought that one was another really interesting one. Um, I just really enjoyed that. And it's like about carnivals. So if you're into carnival stories, this actually is. That's not like a metaphorical name. So yeah, those are my two picks for... I don't know. So I guess that was science fiction and fantasy. Yeah, well, for our like award-winning short fiction, yeah. Um, I will talk about the standalone story that I read, which is Welcome to Your Authentic Indian Experience TM by Rebecca Roanhorse, which is a 2017 Hugo Award nominee for Best Short Story, a Nebula Award nominee for Best Short Story, and was a 2017 Locust Recommended Short Story, and was the 2017 Apex Magazine Reader's Choice winner. Wow. And if you read it, you will see why. This this short story is like a gut punch. Um, and also, it is it is playing with one of my favorite tropes in sci-fi, which is sort of the bureaucracy of technology and like the the really like sort of hilariously mundane uses of technology twisted in weird ways. Um, what it is about is a guy who works in um like he he works in basically virtual reality and his job is to provide an authentic ex- indian experience tm to clients um who are also doing virtual reality so he gets into his pod and he like you know builds his alter ego and greets them and leads them on a vision quest like they are basically tourists paying for a virtual reality vision quest and he is a Native American, but he is not a stereotype of, you know, a Native American. And the story, to, like, add to sort of the little dissonance that is going on, the story is written in second person. Now, I know that a lot of people have really strong feelings on POV. I cannot count the number of discussions I see on what feels like a daily basis Mm. about people who hate first person versus third person. And like universally, it seems people really have a hard time with second person, but I love it. And I think it's because a lot of times it, it just, it produces this really different reading experience and pulls you right in. And I can see if the author doesn't do a good job, maybe it's not fun, but I think Roan Horse does a killer job on this one, um, especially by putting you 
in sort of the driver's seat, at, like in sort of the character as you are watching the story unfold. Um, and so, yeah, so the main character, this is his job. This is his day job. And, um, you know, he's got a wife and like, you know, the marriage is like fine, but a little strained sometimes. And then he has this guy come through for a vision quest and end up meeting the guy in real life and things unfold from there. I'm not going to tell you what happens because it is a short story. And I don't want to spoil anything, but it is a story that's about appropriation. It is about stereotypes. Um, it is about how we sort of pigeonhole both the people around us and ourselves um, and really like what it means to be a Native American in U.S. culture and like what that looks like when when all people are looking at you about being a Native American person it's really really good it's so satirical and so like so snarky and really just it's it's yeah I, I can absolutely see why it's up for all of these awards and one of the reasons that I picked this story is because I have been hearing about Rebecca Roanhorse because she has a book coming in June from Saga Press called um, Trail of Lightning which is the first in a uh, series and it is about um it is like a, it's a, it's a Native American main character. It's like an apocalypse story. There's like the cover reminds me a bit of Storm um, from the X Men, right? Like, yeah, there's like a big lightning bolt thing happening, and I'm like really hoping that somebody has lightning powers because that's always <laughs> the thing that I love. Um, but yeah, so there's a climate apocalypse, and um, there are like you know gods and heroes walking the land and monsters, and the main character Maggie is a monster hunter. Um, and I just like, yeah, everything about this speaks to my interests and the cover is really killer, as I said. So, um, oh yeah, the, the elevator pitch that Roan Horse gave for this is an indigenous Mad Max Fury Road. So like, oh, hello, awesome. like do want. Um, and she also announced recently on her blog that she is going to write an Anasazi inspired epic fantasy series too. So there is a lot coming from her. She also has a bunch of of other short fiction in various places um, and some nonfiction essays in anthologies and things you can read online. So there's a lot of good coming out of Rebecca Roanhorse, and I'm super excited to be following her career now. Um, and this was my first exposure to her, aside from like the buzz that's coming out around her upcoming books. So I'm really glad to have been introduced to her writing this way. I'm super, super jazzed about it, as you can tell. <laughs> that sounds incredible. I... Mm -hmm. I'm already anticipating that book just because of Right. <laughs> I'm you gonna like email it. a million people at Saga and be like, where is my galley? I need a galley. Oh my goodness. <laughs> give me a galley. I mean, we're only two months out now, so surely somebody oh, yeah. will give me a galley. Surely. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> um, okay, so I my next pick, my last pick, I guess, is one you have read and that I read yes. because you read it and I heard so many good things about it and it's The Merry Spinster by Mallory Ortberg and Ortberg now goes by Daniel Mallory Ortberg but you'll find this collection of retold fairy tales under Mallory Ortberg if you're looking. Um, so I read this book because the cover looked excellent and because you said one of the stories absolutely terrified you. Yes I can't wait to hear what did you think am I just a big wuss? You're not a big wuss. <laughs> I 
I will let you know. Okay, I'm gonna. Okay, okay. I, I'm gonna talk about it. Okay. <laughs> so I just, in general, I just really love a fairy tale retelling. I'm sure I've talked about this before, or mythological retelling, and definitely a good scare. And the thing about me and about reading some of these stories is I'm not necessarily the put it in the freezer type. Um, I don't necessarily put the books down that scare me or I don't get scared in the way. I just keep reading it and think, you know what, I'll just deal with the nightmares. (laughs) (laughs) So I don't necessarily feel scared while I'm reading them. But they have a lingering effect. So I knew I had to read the collection. There is a really creepy mermaid sea creature on the cover. And the title actually refers to a retelling of Beauty and the Beast, uh, which I also really liked. So by that alone, you can tell that these stories are based on some familiar tales like Beauty and the Beast and The Little Mermaid and The Velveteen Rabbit. Um... Which is the one that scared Jen. Yep. Which was indeed creepy. Um, especially if you're averse to stories where children are in peril. Mm-hmm. I would give warning um, for that. And in fact, to anyone who doesn't like violence, because there's some violence. And yeah, I wouldn't describe myself as scared while reading these, even though they were definitely creepy. But they were, I think part of it is just that they were also super weird. So mm-hmm. I was almost distracted by the scary part, by the weirdness of it. And I would almost liken the experience of reading The Mary Spinster to, I was thinking about it a lot. And I, I just thought like, it's like waking up from one of those quickly forgotten nightmares where you're really disoriented with these vestigial traces of this feeling that you only later realize is fear. And that is how it came across to me, which maybe doesn't sound like a fun reading experience, but it absolutely, like I, I live for this stuff. So it was absolutely fun for me. That that story though, <laughs> the story with the rabbit i can't even remember the name of it uh that it definitely had some like i felt like i was looking over my shoulder a lot i don't have any stuffed toys (laughs) in my proximity but you know it's one of those stories where you're suspicious of your cat for a moment (laughs) Mm -hmm. so it sticks with you i do not judge you for being afraid and for (laughs) For being affected by that story because I can absolutely see it. It was disturbing is the word. Disturbing. Yes, that's a good word. And that whole collection is sinister. In, yes. In, is the word, yeah. yeah. Disturbing and sinister. Put it on the blurb. Put it on the cover. Um, but yeah, the writing style really felt familiar as far as fairy tales go. So if you're looking for like fairy tale retellings that kind of harken to that old classic style, it was spare And it left a lot to the imagination, which is perhaps why the stories had such a powerful effect. I think some of the best creepy stories do that. They're not, like, super explicit about what you should be afraid of, but you know. (laughs) And I felt like sometimes I'd go back through the story and I would be like, what did I just read? Which added to that disorienting effect. For instance, the story, um, The Thankless Child, really gave me that feeling where I was like, I don't I don't know what's happening, but I'm horrified. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, mm-hmm. I got the creepy crawlies. Um, 
And I really enjoyed the Little Mermaid retelling, which is the opening. Yeah, the opening story. And it's good that it's the opening story. It really catches you. Um, It's called The Daughter Cells. And uh, these stories do hearken to the original tellings in that they are definitely not, if you couldn't tell already, they are not happily ever after stories (laughs) necessarily. And when I was a kid, I had this children's illustrated anthology of tall tales and in it was The Little Mermaid. And it was the first time I came across that story and whoever edited that anthology did not believe in protecting, you know, the wee tots from the gruesome ends you find in most fairy tales. So when I watched the, like, Disney's The Little Mermaid, I fully expected her to die and for a decision (laughs) of, like, whether or not to commit this horrible atrocity to be part of the plot. I didn't realize at that time that every Disney princess story has to end happily ever after. (laughs) (laughs) So this story, the daughter sells gay, like, I felt like I was pulled way back in time, like, reading The Little Mermaid for real for the first time. Even though it doesn't exactly match up with the original, it has, like, those violent, horrible elements. Um, So, yeah, I think, like, the tone of the stories are very, like, flip. It's very, like, you know, flippantly... This is just dark and grim and, like, this is just the way this world is. And I love that. I enjoy irreverence and I have a healthy appetite for all things grim and dark. So this really fit my wheelhouse like a charm. I'm so glad I heard so much about it and that it came my way. Um, So if you're similarly minded and you don't mind, like, either powering through or occasionally putting in the freezer, I would definitely give the Mary Spinster a look. And again, you'll find that under the name Mallory Ortberg. I'm so glad you liked it. Yeah! <laughs> that makes me really happy. Um, yes, you're right. It's, I mean, I, it, body horror is always a thing, and, like, creepy stories about children are always a thing for me. Mm-hmm. So that Velveteen Rabbit story in particular was, like, but, yeah, she's, her sense of humor, excuse me, his sense of humor is so apparent and so well portrayed um, that that collection is great. That collection deserves to win some awards. It hasn't yet, but I know. think it will. I, I predict. I, I feel like it for sure could. Um, so, okay. My last uh, pick is a short story collection. It's Her Body and Other Parties by Carmen Maria Machado, which was a finalist for the National Book Award for Fiction and the winner of the National Book Critics Circle's John Leonard Prize. Um, and I have been hearing nothing but raves about this for months, months and months and months. Um, and I can absolutely see why. It's, it's, it's really good. It is not what I would call solidly fantasy or science fiction. I would definitely call it speculative because it contains so many elements from so many different types of genre fiction. So there's, there's, um, some fairy tale-esque stuff going on. There's some horror elements. Um, there is some fantastical stuff, but there's also, I'm going to talk about one of my favorite stories and that one is more of like a near future, more science fiction-y story. So there's a lot of different things going on. Maybe fabulism is the right word. I don't know. She's doing a lot. She's doing a super lot here. Um, and people have compared her to Karen Russell and Kelly Link which I think is legit. Um, Although I would actually say that Machado is perhaps darker than either of those, which I know is saying something because Karen Russell and Kelly Link both get pretty dark. (laughs) I know, but I feel like... 
I don't know. Maybe it's just because I've read this one the most recently of those three authors, but she goes places. And the thing that I was so struck by, especially in the first story, which is about a woman who has a green ribbon around her neck. Um, this is like a very classic folktale kind of thing. Um, and she's like told her husband forever never to touch it or untie it. And of course, you know, over the years, he like continues to want to do that. And then bad things happen. Um, and, but it was so like what she did in taking that story and updating it for a contemporary audience and like considering it in light of contemporary moments, like I'm just going to say it, the me too movement, even though I'm sure this was written way before that became like a never ending headline. Um, I mean, not that it was ever not an issue, but it is now currently much more in the news than it ever was before. Um, is that she has this ability to make something both a metaphor, but actually like, Actually, also to make it its own thing. Like, it is, it can be read as a metaphor, but it's so clearly, the story is so clearly, like, it feels so real. It feels so itself. It doesn't feel like a metaphor when you're reading it, which is a really amazing feat to my mind. Um, and my favorite story, which is going to sound weird to, like, have a favorite story in this very dark and sinister collection, um, but is about a woman who is basically at, like, facing the end of the world. Um, she, like, a plague is consuming humanity little by little. And but the story is her taking an inventory of all her past sexual encounters. Um, and she is bisexual, so both men and women figure. And um and and you sort of catch the trajectory of her existence and like her running from the plague over the course of like her telling about these encounters and it is so beautifully done and also there is this moment where you realize like what exactly like why the person who's telling the story is telling you the story this way it's so good oh man like I just get angry about how good it is I have, that's a thing that happens to me sometimes it's like how dare you be so good like how dare it is I am a how dare meme right now um, like how dare you Carmen Maria Machado be so good at this um it's just really good there's another like I'll talk about one more for a second there's another one that basically is about a, a girl who works a retail job in a in a store that sells prom dresses but then it turns into a ghost story and like wow it's just really this is a really intense and really good collection I will say it has trigger warnings for sexual assault um, and like a lot of violence against women in various forms. So if you're feeling tender or, you know, like, like if you're not in your, in your strong place, perhaps do not pick it up yet. Um, but for those of you who do not have those triggers or are like feeling good about it, like it's really worth your time. It's really incredible. So that's Her Body and Other Parties by Carmen Maria Machado. She just sounds like an excellent person in general. Ooh, I know. I like, I'm having like fan moments that I've never seen and or met her, but I'm just like, oh, how are you so good at this? It's, it's a it's thing. It's fabulous. <laughs> I love it. And that's our show. So thank you so much for listening. And of course, as usual, you can email us at sffyeah at bookriot.com. Let us know what you think. And send us any suggestions you have for future shows. That would be fantastic. And please, please do review us on Apple Podcasts. That's how people find us. It really helps 
Um, and we would appreciate you forever for doing that. So thank you again for listening and have a great, uh, ha- uh, happy reading. <laughs> <laughs> Struggling. Ha, ha, ha.